0: Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, sponsored by EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, and also sponsored by Natural Awakenings Magazine. Live your healthiest life on a healthier planet. Now here's your host, Bernice Butler. Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today we are now in our fifth season and we remain just as excited as ever to continue to help you explore and understand that unbreakable relationship between your health and the health of the planet here we look at the hottest topics related to our environment and its sustainability and how they affect your health and wellness here issues like climate change plastic pollution, extreme weather events, and others will meet up with everyday impacts like allergies and asthma, digestive issues and gut health, cancers, lung, heart issues, and more. So listen in today as we interview experts for today's show on clean energy imperative. And this is the first in our series for this month on energy production and consumption. And so today, as we dig into the clean energy imperative, we want to look at why we need it, what it is, and when do we need it. It's all about embracing clean energy and looking at it from a holistic approach and doing that in our everyday lives. Now, in the rhythm of our daily lives, energy is really the heartbeat that powers our homes, it fuels our transportation, and it sustains our industries. However, As our dependence on conventional energy sources poses an increasing threat to the environment, the call for a transition to clean energy becomes more and more urgent and ever more. And it's almost a crisis situation. And so in this exploration that we're going to do today of clean energy, we're going to engage with some experts to try to help us unravel the interplay between energy consumption and production, to help us demystify the why, the what, and the when of clean energy and its imperative for the everyday person, the ordinary person, really, in their everyday lives. And so the clean energy imperative is is a term that refers to the urgent need for us to transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy sources that are clean, affordable, and sustainable. Clean Energy Imperative is motivated by goals of reducing greenhouse gas emissions, enhancing our energy security and independence, improving public health and environmental quality, and creating economic opportunities and jobs. Now, the necessity to transition to clean energy is grounded in the environmental toll that is exacted by our conventional energy sources. Our current energy systems heavily, heavily heavily reliant on fossil fuels, release pollutants that degrade our air quality and contribute to climate change. The extraction, the transportation, and the burning of these fuels have profound effects on our ecosystems and human health. Now, energy consumption as it stands is not a neutral act. It directly influences the health of the planet. And the transition to clean energy is a collective response that we must all participate in to mitigate these adverse effects and safeguard the delicate balance of our ecosystems. Clean energy is not solely about adopting renewable energy sources for electricity generation. It also encompasses a holistic shift in both consumption and production. It's not just about where we get our energy. It's about how efficiently we use it. And energy conservation and efficiency measures play a pivotal role in achieving our clean energy goals. And so by embracing energy efficient technologies and practices in our homes and businesses, we can reduce the overall demand for energy and complement the shift toward renewable sources. From energy efficient appliances to smart home systems, Each small change contributes to a more sustainable and resilient energy future. The urgency, though, to address both energy consumption and production is underscored by the immediate consequences of climate change. Climate policy experts, like these we have today, (laughs) stress that we're at a critical juncture where the impacts of climate change are escalating increasingly. Transitioning to clean energy is not only about mitigating future risk, but also about adapting to the changes that are already upon on us. We need clean energy as soon as possible, but the pace of progress has been somewhat slow and certainly uneven. According to the U.S. Department of Energy, the share of electricity from clean sources in 2030 could grow to 80 percent, nearly twice the expected amount before the inflation reduction passed. However, more work needs to be done on the technologies, the policies and infrastructure to achieve the U.S. climate goal of 100 percent carbon pollution free energy or free electricity by 2035. And to achieve this, we need to end our reliance on fossil fuels and invest in alternative sources of energy that are clean, accessible, affordable, sustainable and reliable. And so the clean energy imperative is not an abstract concept. It unfolds every day in the choices that we make, from turning off the lights when not in use to supporting renewable energy initiatives, and individual actions in both consumption and production certainly contribute to the larger narrative of change that we all must embrace. Now, this is a lot, but here today to help us explore and unpack this are two experts who are going to make us smarter about all of this. We have with us today Rana Adib, And Rana is with the Renewable Energy Policy Network for the 21st Century, fondly called REN21. And REN21 is a global public-private multi-stakeholder network on renewable energy that's headquartered at the United Nations Environment Program in Paris, France. And previously... Rana was REN21's research coordinator, developing the international expert community and leading the REN21 Renewables Global Status Report Series. Rana has over 20 years' experience in the energy sector. Welcome, Rana, and did I get all of that right?
1: Yes, perfect. Thank you so much. Uh,
2: Happy to be here.
0: And thank you so much for joining us today. And the uh, folks from the UN Environment Program are good friends of this program. They've been on a number of times over the years, so we're glad that you're there. Uh, Our next guest is Emily Beagle. Emily is a research associate in the Weber Energy Group at the University of Texas at Austin. And I have to say, go Longhorns, that is my alma mater. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> she works on energy policy and pathways to decarbonization of the global energy system with a particular focus on the deployment and use of hydrogen to reduce emissions in the hardest to abate sectors. And prior to joining the Weber Energy Group, Emily was senior associate with the Climate Aligned Industries program at the Rocky Mountain Institute. And she also served as a congressional fellow in energy in the office of Senator Tina Smith. Welcome, Longhorn Emily. Thank you so much for joining us. And did I get all of that right?
2: Yes. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here.
0: Great. Thank you all so much. I want to start off with you, Emily, and tell our listeners about how does our energy production and consumption affect the environment and our health?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. As you alluded to already, Bernice, a vast majority of our energy system is based on fossil fuels. So about 80% globally, 80% of energy is derived from fossil fuels, coal, oil, natural gas, and the remaining 20% would be from what we might call clean or renewable sources, nuclear, hydro, wind, solar, and some others. And so in order to get that energy source from where we're using it, the way that we produce it to where we finally consume it, um, it's an extensive, complex system uh, within number of environmental and health impacts along the way. So maybe starting from the production side, we can think about the environmental impact of how we mine or extract these various resources, particularly fossil resources. But there are also land impacts when we're thinking about wind and solar and other renewables like hydroelectricity. And so there are impacts not only on the land itself, but potentially to the people who are working in and around and in those extractive industries that we need to be mindful of. And then as we move along our energy system, we have impact particularly uh, sort of at refining facilities. Um, And some of those as we upgrade our petroleum resources to turn it into the materials that we use, like gasoline in our vehicles, et cetera. So there are health impacts associated with these intense industrial facilities as we're refining our fuels. Um, There's also impacts where we consume them. Um, We can think about when we burn coal or we burn natural gas to make electricity. There are isolated areas around those power plants where we have pollutant impacts, um, some heavy metals, and sulfur, other materials, particularly a part of coal when we burn coal that cause sort of acute air quality impacts in those regions close to the plant, but also the more broader implications of the greenhouse gas and carbon dioxide emissions associated with burning these fuels, coal and natural gas. And finally, at at the consumption, some examples of some of the health impacts there, we can think about exhaust from vehicles as we're burning gasoline in our cars and driving around. We have all of that Um, sort of other air quality impacts to be thinking about in the way that we are uh, consuming that energy and our final energy consumption patterns there.
0: And and I've heard this process explained a number of times, but for whatever reason, Emily, as you were explaining it, what's coming into my mind is pain from the earth. (laughs) You know, as you talk about that extraction process, if the earth could talk if it could groan it would be probably like sound like childbirth or something that's just a really uh, we don't think of the earth we think of ourselves but when you it, it just has to be a really traumatic almost thing that extraction process and and we probably need to think about that a little bit more that that doesn't that that has impacts Ronna, were you? Did you want to weigh in on that? Uh, but <laughs> I—we have to go to break, and I will read you right back in when we come back. We want to go ahead and give a shout-out to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all HEB stores, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com. Check them out. Our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care, practicing dentistry for over 40 years with a holistic approach, non-mercury, looking at the whole body. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lindentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, to today's show on energy production and consumption. And we're looking at the clean energy imperative, why we need it, what it is, and when do we need it. And we are back with Emily Beagle, with the Weber Group at the University of Texas at Austin, and with Rana Adib with REN21, which is headquartered at the U.N. Environment Program. Again, thank you all for being with us today. And so we want to go back and start with you, Rana. We were talking about how energy production and consumption affects our environment and health. And I want you to weigh in on that, please, for us.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. And I, I, I really wanted to echo the part which you said, like the pain of the earth. And I think, um, when we're really looking at fossil fuel, um, and also the extraction side, uh, the pain of the earth is really, we have a triple crisis. Um, fossil fuel is responsible for 75% of CO2 emissions. Um, but I think it's, uh, it's really important what you have uh, highlighted before also, Emily, is, um, when we're looking at the extraction of coal, oil and fossil gas, We're speaking about massive amounts, massive tons um, of those materials that are being produced and uh, taken away, I guess, from the earth every year. So around uh, 8 million tons uh, of coal, 4 million tons of oil and 2.6 million tons of fossil gas. Um, and this is basically being extracted every year because it is the fuel which we are going to burn. And when you're looking into a sustainable, renewable-based um, material, that are obviously any technology does require materials and minerals uh, to be extracted uh, from the earth. So whether it's steel, copper, or lithium and uh, and cobalt, for instance, um, these are here. We are speaking about a much smaller amounts. And what is I think really interesting to highlight here is. These are extracted to be used in the technologies, in the systems, but it also means that we have the capacity here to recycle them, to reuse them, and even though they are extracted from the earth, there is a way to ensure that um, the environmental impacts are really uh, massively reduced um, when we compare it to
0: fossil fuels. Indeed, and I think just what you're saying is many, if not most, or all of the renewals require some of the Earth's benefits, mm-hmm. uh, some extraction, but not nearly as much mm-hmm. as the extraction of uh, fossil fuels and coal and things like that. And hopefully they won't mar the Earth <laughs> like, like those things do. But thank both of you all for that very good explanation. Rana. I want to come back to you, though. Can you explain how the transition to clean energy impacts everyday individuals, particularly in terms of their en- energy consumption and daily activities?
1: So um, I think what is really important to to see is when we're looking into moving away from fossil fuel, which needs to happen to sustainable energy, there are uh, there are three pillars. One is avoiding the energy consumption. So you had mentioned on uh, not having the lights on, et cetera, which do not directly have an impact on our on our well-being, so to say. There is another one which is energy efficiency. So, for instance, uh, moving from uh, to uh, LEDs, uh, basically elements uh, that are going to consume for the same service uh, less electricity or less energy. Um, We will have one uh, very important example here when you move from an internal combustion engine uh, car to an electric uh, car. Here we already reduce two-thirds of the energy, we avoid two-thirds of the energy consumption we have in an internal combustion engine car if we move to an electric car, only by shifting the fuel or the technology system. So a really key element uh, to, uh, so an energy efficiency solution. And then there's a third part, which is which energy do we use? Do we use energy coming from coal, oil, uh, fossil fuel, uh, fossil gas, or do we use um, energy coming from renewable energy, whether it's whether it is solar football tech, whether it is wind, whether it is sustainable biomass, uh, geothermal, uh, or solar thermal. Because uh, I, I think another aspect to underline is we do consume lots of electricity and electrification will happen more and more. But 80% of our energy we consume is actually for heating, for cooling, and um, for transportation. So um, what are the impacts here? I think there are some behavioral changes, but then there's also this question of which energy do you use? And this does actually not have an impact on how you use it. Um, It is rather, do you look into possibilities of producing your own electricity? Do you go with a green or renewable energy um, electricity provider? Um, do you fuel your car sitting on your couch at home because you have an electric car that is connected to your rooftop? Or do you need to go to a station uh, where you basically fuel it with, um, with gasoline? Um, the service is not different with regard to this. And I think this is really something really important to, to underline. Consumers really have the possibility to make those choices. And um, also benefit from this. Um, Why are they benefiting? Because it is also a way to reduce the energy bill uh, by investing here. Obviously, if there is uh, governmental support, um, this is something that can foster it even more. Um, But it's also a way to get more independent from a fossil fuel-based part and really foster uh, Local job creation and um, taking advantage of uh, the fact that renewable energy can happen everywhere. Just one number: um, we are renewable energy as part of the energy mix in over 200 countries, which already shows the potential it has on being basically deployed anywhere in the world. Indeed, and I want to put a fine
0: point on something that you mentioned, and that was going to clean energy should not change how people use energy. You know, the main purposes will still be to cool and heat their homes and to transport themselves or to to drive. Uh, It changes the sources. And I think In my little mind, there needs to be a lot more conversation about that, uh, because I think that's an area that can really help to get people to buy into it. Because I remember when I I also published a Green and Healthy Living uh, monthly publication, and about 14 years ago when I started, I remember talking about wind energy and having a number of conversations with people about how they didn't have room at their business or at their home to put a windmill out in the backyard, Uh, It's, uh, you know, I I think most of us, most people have come very far from that notion, but I I still think there needs to be more attention paid to educating them that it's not going to change anything you do. Uh, it, it's just going to really change the source. Yeah, Emily, you want to weigh in on that?
2: Yeah, absolutely, Bernice. I think that's such a, a, a critical point because for so long, and even in some cases still, the narrative has been that the clean energy transition will require us to give up something, whether that's giving up driving cars, whether that's giving us having comfortable homes, giving up having the products and materials that we want in exchange for consuming less energy, consuming different forms of energy, and addressing the climate crisis. But we're seeing now that that's not the case. Case that a lot of these renewable technologies are lower cost than the incumbent fossil fuel technologies. And so it shouldn't be and isn't a framing of either or, either we have clean energy or we're able to be comfortable inside our buildings and drive our cars to work, et cetera. It, it can be both. And I think, to your point, reframing so that's the conversation is really critical to moving this clean energy transition forward.
0: Indeed. That was the genesis of Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, really, to help to educate and inform people people about the various environmental issues because there's a deep belief and history has said that if if people know what's going on they understand it then they will do the right thing or take the right action. Yes, Rana, you?
1: Yes, I, I would like to build on this. I think it's also really important to say that uh, because of the um, uh, of planetary boundaries, which are just a reality, uh, it is really important, too, that uh, we are also, um, yes, we can provide the same energy services, but I think it's also really important to um, acknowledge for the fact that collectively, if we want to address the triple crisis of climate crisis, um, pollution, and biodiversity losses, which are actually all, as you rightly said, impacting our health uh, as human beings. And just as a reminder, 1.3 million uh, premature deaths only because we are burning fossil fuel. Uh, Some statistics even say it's going up to 7 million. So this is a a huge impact, basically, on human beings. And um, here it's very clear that uh, a lever is the shift and the switch of the energy source, but any energy and any material we do not use and we do not produce is actually a key lever. And why am I saying it? When we're looking at uh, public, so at transportation, in particular in cities and suburban areas, um, the cities um, are really facing uh, major air pollution uh, challenges mm-hmm. that have a massive risk on the citizens' health. And uh, here one of the levers is not only to shift one car for another one, but it is also about really walking cycling development of public transport because these will avoid to consume they will avoid pollution so um there is also part which is about behavioral change and uh streamlining Um, those solutions into society and making them accepted. And if we're really honest, we see this in many cities. It's not only the air pollution, but it's uh, spending four hours in a traffic jam has an economic cost. It has a personal impact. So it is really also about educating on this front.
0: And, And bringing these things to the forefront of people's minds. You know, as they're sitting there in that car with all that smog swirling around them, it's like, okay, what's happening? And and what is this really about? Let's go back to energy to look for some solutions, Uh, so certainly. We're going to go ahead and and go to break now. And uh, we've been with Dr. Emily Beagle uh, with the Weber Energy Group at the University of Texas at Austin and with Rana Adib at the Renewable Energy Policy Network, REN21, uh, which is headquartered at the U.N. Environment Program. We'll be right back on the other side. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today, to our show today on energy production and consumption. And we are talking about embracing the clean energy imperative, looking at a holistic approach to energy for everyday life. And we are back with Rana Adeeb with the REN21 program and with Emily Beagle at UT Austin. So again, thank you all so much for making time to uh, to join us. I wanna go to you, Emily, now though. Can you talk to us and help our listeners understand the difference between clean energy and renewable energy? That discussion is is something I like to really dig into on this program, because it's also been my experience that a lot of times people, just ordinary people in everyday lives, may not understand or grasp our terminology.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and those those terms are are loaded in that my definitions that I'll give you right now will be different from definitions that you'll get from other groups. But sort of to start with renewable energy by kind of thinking about it from a very technical definition of renewable, those are from sources that are able to renew themselves at the rate that we're consuming them. So we have a rejuvenation of that source that is greater than the amount that we are taking out of it. So traditional energies that would be considered renewable by that definition would be hydro, wind, and solar, sort of as long as we have the sun shining uh, to bring in solar radiation to create air gradients that create wind to create the water cycle that creates rivers that we can get from hydro. We aren't going to consume those resources. Um, There are some questions in that definition about whether or not bioenergy would be considered renewable. If you are consuming it, or I should say replanting it faster than you are consuming it, maybe it would be considered renewable. But also there are a lot of caveats and cases, uh, like deforestation cases that we see around the world, where it clearly isn't renewable. So those are some of the nuances and challenges, and I think areas where I've found people, and I've gotten confused by those definitions. I want to go further
0: into the definition of bioenergy so that people can really un- get a se- understand what we mean. Can you explain that a little bit more and give us some examples?
2: Uh, yeah. So that was be from, I like to define it bioenergy as from any recently living biomass source, uh, that recently living because our fossil fuels are derived from kind of ancient organic matter, ancient mm-hmm. uh, sort of dead plants and animals from hundreds of millions of years ago that have undergone all sorts of geological temperature and pressure mm-hmm. gradients to create fossil fuels. So recently living organic matter. And this is could be algae, it could be trees, it could be waste from, um, from sawmills, it could be waste from other agricultural operations. So like the leftover corn stover that we can't use for food can still be used for fuel, so it's a very encompassing uh, d- definition. As so, could well. you
0: say plant or plant waste? Is yes.
2: that is that a good way to think about it? You've uh- caught me. My dissertation research was on bioenergy, <laughs> okay. and so I have that very academic tendency uh-huh. to go straight into the technical terms. So, I love that plant and plant waste stuff. But what thanks, about thanks what about me. cow manure?
0: Is that considered bio too? Yes, or animal waste. I know we don't use animals mm-hmm. for 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 energy, but animal waste. So plant animal or plant waste, waste yep. or animal waste. Okay, <laughs> got it. Go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I really wanted we need people
2: human <laughs> waste.
0: <Here we> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, you you know you say <laughs> we yeah municipal
1: solid waste.
0: Yeah, yeah we we say that and we laugh about it. But it, it, in my mind, it's in the realm of possibility, and it would be a good circular economy thing. <laughs> Go
1: ahead. Yes. It is being used a lot. I mean, biogas uh, from, in, you see, like wastewater treatment plants or even from municipal solid waste uh, in urban, suburban areas is actually very, very common. And uh, so I, I think it's a, it's a first circular economy uh, or waste to energy we should think about uh, as soon as we have human, agriculture and animal activities.
0: Indeed. Yes,
2: absolutely. Go, go ahead Emily
0: finish telling us though about the renewables and difference in renewables and clean.
2: Um yes, yeah, so so clean energy is perhaps a more broader definition and so there are more subsets of that definition if you will think about clean in terms of low CO2, lower zero CO2 emissions associated with that. So by that definition, in addition to all of your renewables being a subset of clean, something like nuclear would also be considered a clean energy, can be used to describe uh, minimal environmental or health impacts as well. Um, But I would say that most generally, it would include your renewables, wind, solar, hydro, geothermal, and then also your nuclear.
0: And, and I know both of you all are, are steeped in policy, so I'll just come at you with this, too. Because I, I, I guess it's, it kind of concerns me, these two terms, because I know they are confusing to people. Why do we have that out there? I understand that, you know, they, they really are different. Clean energy and and renewable. Clean includes renewable and some others, and cleaner using some of the older ways, but cleaner. Is there a necessity to use both terms? Because
1: again, I it, it, it's not helpful. Rana, you're smiling. <laughs> yes, I'm smiling. I think I, so. I, I to be honest, uh, you nice here you're touching upon a very, very important point, And I think a point also that shows how difficult it is uh, for uh, policymakers, but also the economy and um, the society to move out from a fossil fuel-based economy and society where we are used to this and where we have interests in place, whether it is industrial interests, whether it is country interests, uh, uh, economic interests um, that would actually love to perpetuate uh, the use of fossil fuel, and uh, moving away here into a renewable based and efficient, um, energy system, economy and society. Um, so I think what is really important to bring in into the switch between clean and renewable is the sustainability aspect. And so when we're thinking about sustainable energy, um, this is actually energy which does comprise energy saving, efficiency and renewables because these are the part that are really sustainable. And I think what is important here is there's a sustainability part that when we have clean, and so you you might hear things like uh, natural gas, which is actually a fossil gas and is also contributing to CO2 emissions, pollution, etc., cetera, um, is often um, positioned and sold as a transition fuel. But the reality today is when you're looking at economics, uh, we know that renewable energy is, um, in most areas of the world, uh, the least cost option to produce electricity. So there is not really a reason to go through a transition period of natural gas directly to renewable energy. We can directly jump to efficiency and renewable energy. And I think this is why it is really important um, to shift the narrative in a way that we are highlighting the important role of efficiency and renewables. And that also in the discussion and the communication to society, it is very clear and to citizens that it's very clear that all major energy scenarios, whether we, so uh, to to mention the International Energy Agency or the International Renewable Energy Agency, but also um, the Department of Energy, for instance, um, the National Renewable Energy Lab, have in their scenarios a clear statement that renewable energy will represent over eighty percent of the energy we're going to consume in the future, so uh, it is really important to shift away and to shift towards to an efficient renewable base part and Here it is not about clean; it is really about renewable energy and I think this is um obviously I speak as uh, coming from renting on renewables now, <laughs> so we are a renewable advocate uh, for full transparency. But today there is uh, not only environmental and sustainability questions, but also economic questions, energy security questions, and energy justice questions um, or aspect that uh, show that uh, renewable energy is a more sustainable and the better um, energy source to move to.
0: Thank you for that uh, very good explanation. I, I want to go to you, Emily, now and talk about what are, the, what are the main drivers and challenges for decarbonizing our global energy system? Uh, especially in the hard-to-abate sectors. Now, two things as we're talking about communications here, we and I've, I've had this discussion with others. We use the term decarbonizing. What does that mean, and why do we use that? And what's a perhaps better or more understandable or more intuitive? That's what, I'm kind of into intuitive. <laughs> what's a more intuitive mm-hmm. term for that? Uh, before you answer our question, Emily. <laughs>
2: Perfect. Yeah, I would say that the main driver for decarbonization um, is climate change. Decarbonization, meaning the idea of how do we reduce the amount or eliminate the amount of carbon dioxide, serving as representing all greenhouse gases within our energy and across more broadly our entire kind of economic global system that we have. Um, and so when we talk about decarbonization, it's really all focused on reducing greenhouse gas emissions, Reducing carbon dioxide. Uh, we have a very similar framework to how we think about prioritizing in the strategies and opportunities for transitioning to clean energy in the energy system, as Rana has been describing starting with an efficiency and conservation, the next tier being electrification, where you're simultaneously increasing the amount of renewable or zero-carbon electricity on your system and then electrifying as many end uses as you can to use that zero-carbon electricity as energy um, in a replace of, say, fossil gas or gasoline in a vehicle or in a power plant. The third tier would be zero carbon molecules, and then the fourth would be things like carbon dioxide removal, so actually kind of pulling CO2 that we've already emitted from the atmosphere out of the atmosphere. When we start thinking about the hard-to-abate sectors, those are the sectors, at least in my mind, that we can't get all the way to zero carbon with the first two pillars. So we can't get there just with efficiency and conservation, and we can't get there through electrification. And what are some examples of those? Yeah. Examples of those would be high temperature industrial heat, heavy duty transportation, like. things like aviation fuels, long, uh, like flying, long distance shipping, um, long distance freight trucks, and some other industrial applications, uh, steel is an example that we think about a lot. So for those sectors where we can't get all the way to zero carbon or zero greenhouse gas emissions with efficiency and conservation or with electrification, we start thinking about, okay, are there green molecules? So that's where some of my work in hydrogen comes in hydrogen because it's just H2. It doesn't have any carbon associated with it. So we can use it in a lot of these applications to decarbonize, to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide, eliminate the carbon dioxide associated with these processes. And if there's no greenhouse gas emissions associated with where we get that hydrogen from, we can use that as a tool for reducing emissions in those hard to abate sectors.
0: Indeed. Now, you said two things that I want to camp on for just a minute. And it, it goes back to this has been a really uh, unexpected, but I think great opportunity to talk about terms. <laughs> because you said you mm-hmm. use two that I want to dig into a little bit. You use green molecules. And I'm still not convinced, Emily, yet on decarbonization. I, we have to go to break. And so we're going to come back and, and try to unpack those two terms a little bit more on the other side. We have been with Dr. Emily Beagle at the Weber Energy Group at the University of Texas at Austin and with Rana Adib with the REN21 Uh, headquartered at the United Nations Environment Program. And they are really making us smarter today. Thank you all. We'll be right back on the other side. Want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority, for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all HEB stores, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com. Check them out. Our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care, practicing dentistry for over 40 years with a holistic approach, non-mercury, looking at the whole body. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lindentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today, to our show on energy production and consumption, and today we're focusing in on the clean energy imperative, why we need it, what it is, and when do we need need it or when do we need to do it? And we are back with Rana Adib with the REN21 program at the UN uh, Environment Program and with Emily Beagle in the Weber Energy Group at UT Austin. And they are making us much, much smarter. Thank you, ladies, for joining us today. And so, Emily, before the break, though, you were trying to help us understand uh, about decarbonization as well as hard-to-abate sectors. And g- green molecules, yes. <laughs> so if you can break down green molecules, I know that hydrogen is one, but how can we intuitively understand, our listeners intuitively understand green molecules?
2: Yeah, uh, that's, a, that's a great point. Another wonderful example uh, that I didn't intentionally put in as an example of why terms are so important, so thank you for calling me out on it. I uh, Use green molecules. Uh, you could also call them maybe clean molecules to describe uh, molecules That are so things like fuels that could replace the way that we're currently using what we currently use natural fossil gas for, what we currently use gasoline for, some of those other more traditional fossil fuels, those as molecules, uh, replace those with a zero carbon alternative. Um, this is a good option in the hard to abate. Um, it's a little bit challenging to answer your question about what all of the options for those green mm-hmm, molecules mm-hmm. would be because it's a, a newer area. They're hard to abate because we don't have a lot of those solutions yet. So there's certainly technology opportunities to develop uh, other kinds of green molecules than hydrogen, which is um, the one that I mentioned. Okay.
0: And, and again, this is the last point, and I know I'm making a fine point on it, but I think it's important, going back to decarbonization. I, I want to get something out there that is intuitive, but when when people hear decarbonization, they, they right away have a sense of what it is. And my initial take is, and I think the initial thing that most of us think is non-fossil fuels, because we know that that creates carbon. Or, or maybe it's anything that burns, because I know fires, when things burn, that is creating carbon. But there's some other things as well, Right.
2: Yeah, and I can go back to the, the carbon is really the critical part of that because it's really carbon dioxide that we're most concerned about when it comes to uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And okay. so you can burn hydrogen, for example, H2. Mm-hmm. You can burn ammonia and H3. Neither of those contain carbon. Um, and so those would fall into that green molecules, or they would fall into an option that wouldn't have that carbon cost to them, if you will. I got you. Output. Rana, can you weigh in? on you want to weigh in on that
1: too? Yes, yes, because I think it's also important to uh, to um, clarify, basically when we're looking into hydrogen and ammonia, um, as Emily said, like, I- indeed, when we burn them, they are not producing, basically, uh, carbon, and they do not have uh, basically climate impact of so CO2 emissions. Um, they're not contributing to climate change. However, and I think this is really important to underline, these Need to be produced those molecules need to be produced, and very often, and I think this is basically um, something that we need to raise the awareness about is when we are looking for instance, at hydrogen today in the world, most of the hydrogen is actually produced with fossil fuel, so this is not hydrogen that is that does not have a climate impact. So when we are speaking about hydrogen, and I think um, we uh, during the break we quickly uh, touched up on this. Like uh, in hard-to-abate sectors here, it is energy-intensive sectors. Okay. These mm. are sectors where solutions do not exist yet. But where very clearly, we also need to decarbonize, and there are solutions that can be developed. Um, but for those sectors, we will need hydrogen. We might need ammonia. Um, but the hydrogen we need here needs to be produced with um, zero emission energy, which is renewable energy. And I think it's really important to underline that um, those energy carriers, so-called, like the molecules, um, are really used for those sectors because when you are – today we see very often there is a bit of a hydrogen bubble in the world. And we say like, oh, we need hydrogen uh, for heating, for buildings, uh, we can use it in our cars. But actually there are much better solutions for those applications whether it is electric heat pumps compared uh, combined with solar photovoltaics, solar thermal, whether it is electric cars. And I think um, it's really important to see that the hydrogen we produce requires three times more, um, for instance, uh, solar PV and wind installations uh, in comparison to direct use of the electricity. And I think this is really Important that we don't take it as a silver silver bullet. Right. So right. hydrogen is not silver bullet. It's very important, but um, it requires building up the foundations, which is renewable electricity, to produce hydrogen or ammonia.
0: And Emily, I want to go back to you for a moment, and that is, what role do you see technology playing in making clean energy or renewable energy uh, accessible and applicable for ordinary people in their in their homes and their communities?
2: Uh, I think. Fortunately, we've seen a lot of the development of technologies that have made some of those, some of the renewable electricity more accessible, um, rooftop solar PV. In terms of new technologies, I'm a little bit skeptical, like, but somewhat optimistic about the potential role that new data tools could play in helping to, say, renewable electricity generation with demand. Um, That could be things as simple as, for the regular consumer, some smart thermostats within your homes or smarter electric vehicle charging where your car sort of knows when it can charge so that it's taking advantage of when there are a lot of renewables uh, producing electricity. Um, So I think there are some interesting opportunities uh, going forward there. And then we've already sort of alluded to the technology needs in some of these harder-to-abate so maybe that could be uh, cool new materials that we can use to make products for individual consumers that are more within that idea of the circular economy. How do we recycle and capture and use CO2 and embed it in concrete or in plastics rather than just releasing it into the atmosphere? Some exciting technology options from that from that sense as well in this
0: space. Rana, and I want to ask you too Rana as you I want you to weigh in on that too, but I also want you to tell us about maybe some examples that you've seen or been involved with where there best practices and lessons may have been learned from successful renewable energy projects and initiatives that might be an inspiration for us.
1: Thank you. I think uh, maybe to complement uh, quickly what uh, what Emily said, um, I, I really think one of the messages that really needs to be added is yes, obviously, innovation, technology innovation is is basically key. It has been key to bring renewable energy where it is today. And today we're in a situation where it is the least cost option actually to produce renewable electricity. Uh, the majority of new um, power producing capacities basically or generation is renewable based and this is not because of sustainability issues it's because it's basically an economic choice um, and it's the least cost option so I think this is just a message out we should not wait for massive innovation because we already have the tools and technologies existing that only need to be deployed so there's actually no excuse to wait <laughs> to say. The other part, inspiring stories, and I think um, I'm deliberately going to speak about some inspiring stories that will not build on the power sector only because, um, as I mentioned before, 80% is actually um, the energy we consume is for heating, cooling, and transportation, so I take the building uh, sector. Here we have... um, Only around 10% of our energy we consume is basically uh, renewables. And what we have seen in Europe, for instance, uh, with the uh, energy crisis uh, Europe was facing, the energy supply crisis, energy security crisis, a massive development of heat pumps and heat pumps combined with solar pv solar rooftop is actually a very economic uh, part so what we have seen here um, is that for instance uh, housing uh, players uh, were collaborating with energy players and were offering uh, credits where the energy bill is basically built into um, the housing bill if you like uh, for construction and i think these are business models that are Really interesting and inspiring because the empty service is basically built into our natural environment. Whether it is um, whether it is here in this case uh, the building sector, whether it is the cars, you can find uh, similar approaches here. And maybe another aspect, just the agricultural sector. Um, we have globally indeed regions that are facing the global heating already to an extent that the, um, temperature have an impact on the agricultural production and the yield. So when you're looking here into, uh, basically the possibility of installing, um, agri photovoltaics, solar PV, mm-hmm. and that can happen on agricultural land, And uh, where you can have like a mix of activities, if you like energy plus agricultural parts, here we are in a situation where there are real benefits. Um, There is more shadow. It reduces the evaporation. And it also allows basically the agricultural players to have another economic um, income. So increasing the yield in the moment, but also contributing to the energy transition. And these are, for instance, solutions that are fundamentally important when we're also looking into developing and emerging economies um, that are much more uh, vulnerable to climate change and uh, where the agriculture activity is a real uh, at the heart of uh, questions about food security. So I just think uh, these are stories that uh, need to be known much more.
0: Indeed, and it, it from some of the things I read, and you all might probably know better, and you can help me out on this, Emily, is that the developing economies really are, uh, developing nations and economies, are should be or can be on the leading edge of clean energy. Are you see what are you seeing in that respect, Emily?
2: Yes. Um, absolutely. You're absolutely right, particularly with the declines in costs of some of these technologies, particularly some of these new agri takes, are so exciting. Thank you for bringing that mm-hmm. up. Um, and so again, this is an area where it's really not necessary. It's not about the technology so much as it is about the narrative, the idea that developing economies in particular uh, don't have to follow the same fossil development path that developed economies have followed, that they can leapfrog and go straight to that low carbon um, energy system, which also has reduced uh, air quality impacts, which has better health outcomes as well. So all of these co-benefits of the clean energy transition as well. And that's definitely a possible um, opportunity for them. They can still get the energy services, but with all of the benefits, not only from a global climate change perspective, but from local environmental health as well.
0: And, you know, really, on, that's a really cool thing, where they've been behind in most of the world, and now they can be leaders. They can be the laboratory. They can be, like you said, these examples that I'm asking you all to tell us about in terms of clean energy, because they're almost starting anew. And so since they're just now doing it, they they can do it right we have come to the end of our time. One, last, You'll get the last word, Rona, because we're, we're at the end, and this has just been a really interesting conversation.
2: Yeah,
1: it is very important to put the fact that the energy transition, the transition to renewables, is good for the climate. It is good for health, but it's also good for uh, real energy justice and uh, a shift and a redistribution of economic benefits uh, to Um, people who have been left behind, whether it is at national level or globally. What is important to mention here, I think this is a real call for action and uh, raising the awareness that governments also make sure that um, these populations, citizens, but also countries really have access to finance, can have access to the technologies and do not find themselves in a situation where massive fossil fuel subsidies of uh, 13 million uh, U.S. dollars per minute, if you see, like, mm-hmm. uh, globally, is actually not uh, creating the right environment for making good and infirm choices just because fossil fuel that is harming us is actually... Um, Subsidize and lease costs. Indeed. It's
0: an exciting time to do the right thing. Uh, and this has been a, a really exciting conversation. Both of you ladies will have to join us uh, again in the future. We have been with Dr. Emily Beagle at the Weber Energy Group at UT Austin and Rana Adib at the Renewable Energy Policy Network for 21st Century, REN21, which is headquartered at the United Nations Environmental Program. Thank you all so much for being with us today. You really have made us smarter. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for listening in today to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. The conversation starts here, but our goal is for it to continue in your home, in your social circles, your workplaces, at the water cooler, and even in the grocery checkout line so that we can all work together to realize that healthy living is simply not possible without a healthy planet. Our culture is a result of a trillion tiny acts taken by billions of people every day like yourselves. And each of those tiny acts can seem insignificant, but all of them add up one way or the other to the change that we each live through. This is your host, Bernice Butler. Thank you for listening in today and join us again next week for more Healthy Living, Healthy Planet radio in our series on energy production and consumption. Thank you. you.